This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Cults. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the establishment of one of the most prolific cults to have sprung from America in the turbulent 1960s and 1970s. It went by many names through the years, from the Children of God to its modern incarnation as the Family International. Its members preached love, but the truth wasn't always so pretty, not with the notorious David Berg at the helm. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Cults on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. In part one of our two-part episode, we will focus in on David Berg, the family history that destined him for a life in ministry, the origins and motivations behind his founding of the family, and the birth of the perversions that would ultimately corrupt his religious group. The Children of God, the Family of Love, the Family International. Though its name changed over time, their focus has remained strikingly clear throughout. They're an apocalyptic Christian cult that believes and teaches all of its members that the end time is coming. Their mission? To make as many non-believers as possible accept the love of Jesus Christ in their hearts, what they believe is the only path to salvation. Over the years, their tactics have shifted from witnessing in the streets to converting people through more unique strategies. Sex, death, Music and salvation became entangled over the long lifespan of the cult, and David Berg's leadership would eventually bring great shame and legal trouble to the group. Yet the group continues on today in the form of the Family International. Despite the weaknesses Berg brought into the cult, he also instilled within it a strong hierarchical structure that sustained it through its darker periods. For that, even after his death, modern members still look to his words from heaven for guidance. In part two, we'll shift our focus from Berg to the family itself, from its origins in Huntington Beach, California, to its eventual international appeal. We'll examine why the disaffected youth of the era were drawn in by this group of hippie preachers, and we'll discover the disastrous consequences of Berg's policies and prophecies on the lives of many within the family. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Religion ran deep in David Berg's family tree. So did rebellion. 
German Jews who converted to Christianity in the 1700s, Berg's ancestors, left their communities in Europe and found religious freedom in the land of opportunity. They settled as peace-loving Mennonites in Pennsylvania and Ohio. For generations on both sides of his family, devotion and faith found steady companions, no matter the denomination they fell into. David's grandfather on his mother's side was the Reverend Dr. John L. Brandt, for years a renowned Methodist circuit preacher. Brandt found his calling amongst the revivalist group called the Disciples of Christ at the turn of the 20th century. He found fame and glory as a leader in this group, helping to establish them as a recognized Protestant denomination, now known as Christian Church. John's daughter Virginia would one day bring David Berg into the world, was born in 1886. In her youth, she often accompanied her father on his missionary travels around the country. But as she aged, it did not seem like she would follow in her father's footsteps. As a college student, she became a hard-drinking society girl. This led her into a spiral of depression and self-doubt. By the early 1900s, Virginia left college behind and turned things around by becoming field secretary for the National Florence Crittenton Mission, a group dedicated to saving souls of wayward young women. Soon enough, she met the young Yalmar Berg. After Brandt got through converting Yalmar to the Disciples of Christ, Virginia married him. Their first child, Yalmar Jr., was born in 1913. But then, tragedy struck. Walking home one evening, Virginia slipped on slick ice. Her back broke in two places. This became an origin story for the rising Berg religious legacy. For five years, Virginia would later tell congregations enraptured by her words, she was bedridden, nearly paralyzed, surely near death's door. And then, in 1918, a year before her third and final child, David Berg, was born, Virginia was graced by a miracle from God. One morning, she simply stood up. The numbness and pain was gone. She was healed. Virginia and Yalmar were true believers now, but John Brandt, her own father, and the disciples of Christ balked at this miracle. This was long before miraculous recoveries like this were commonly used as marketing strategies for American religions. Yet it became the defining characteristic of Virginia's career in ministry. Virginia, Yalmar, and their three children were shunned from preaching to the disciples, but this just enhanced the Berg image. They were welcomed by a loose but widespread organization of missionaries called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. While the mainstream didn't buy into their miracle, the everyman did. Virginia saw this. There were many in the world who wanted to believe her story. They needed to know that God was capable of such actions, and Virginia was their living proof. And as David Berg grew, he too saw Virginia as someone blessed and chosen by God. And if she had been saved for a reason, that must mean that he had a great purpose before him too. The story of Virginia's recovery would, many years down the line, become a piece of David's own religious narrative. In other words, Virginia's myth became David's. And through David, it became the religious justification for his reign over the children of God. David Berg's childhood was spent on the road. Both parents ascended into leadership roles within the Miami chapter of the Christian and Missionary Alliance by 1924. But Virginia was the true star, charismatic, convincing, and pretty. The Christian and Missionary Alliance were devoted to the rising evangelical cause in America. Religious scholars define evangelical Christianity with four main traits. 
a focus on the pursuit of conversion or the ability to be born again, a devotion to biblical authority on all matters, intense attention on the idea of substitutionary atonement, meaning the importance of Christ's sacrifice for humanity. And finally, activism, commonly known as witnessing. The most devout evangelicals preach what their hearts know to be true to anyone who will listen. Unfortunately, devotion to these tenets was Virginia and Yalmar's primary focus. This led to tragedy in the young life of David Berg. Maria, the house and babysitter hired to watch over David, began to sexually molest him before putting him to bed. David was only three years old at the time. Eventually, Virginia grew suspicious of the strange relationship that seemed to be forming between the babysitter and her youngest son. She caught Maria in the act and fired her on the spot. And yet it seems Virginia did not think much of the issue. Despite Virginia's blindness to it, this terrible abuse was one of the most important events to happen to David. To understand the man later in life, we need to take a deeper look into the consequences of the abuse. Now, while Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, she's done a lot of research for the show. So, Vanessa, could you elaborate on the psychological implications at play here? Mm -hmm. Well, it was 1922. Sexual abuse and its effects were not well studied in that day and age. Virginia had fired Maria. What else was there to do? She probably hoped that David was too young to understand what was happening. Well, she wasn't wrong there. But she woefully underestimated what a lack of understanding about what happened to him would do to David's developing mind. It's well known now, though. Studied effects of childhood abuse include intense periods of self-blame, shame, and confusion. A lack of self-esteem or a drive to increase the damaged self-esteem can lead to compulsive behaviors. Some psychologists believe such abuse can lead to the development of borderline personality disorders. What is agreed upon is that childhood abuse often triggers sexual dysfunctions that run the gamut from sexual addiction, compulsive sexual behavior, and in some cases, paraphilia. Mm -hmm. This means an individual becomes sexually focused on atypical subjects, from a certain fantasy to a certain type of person. Such effects would materialize in David as he aged into early puberty, but Virginia didn't understand the cause or consequences. Instead, she focused on barreling ahead with her ministry, now known as the Berg Evangelistic Party, an offshoot of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. While her two older children, Yalmar Jr. and Virginia, drifted from religion and dedication to the Berg family mission, David doubled down. During the 1930s, when David was a teenager, he traveled across the country with Virginia in the family camper van. He acted as her chauffeur, as her song leader, and as her general assistant. In other words, he never left her side. Virginia was the most influential person in Berg's life. Unusual for the time in mainstream culture, Virginia was the leader of this family, not Yelmar. David admired the strength of will she displayed when preaching and truly believed that Virginia was saved by God for a divine purpose. She also spoiled him as much as a poor traveling preacher woman could. She fed him attention and let him stand with her in front of the crowds where she spoke. David wanted to serve the Lord because Virginia told him so. But her control over his life exacerbated a deep confusion in his young mind. Virginia believed in the words he spoke and would not go spiritually easy on David just because he was her son. During these years, David developed a particular habit that affects many teenagers going through puberty, namely masturbation. But David was particularly compulsive in his actions. 
Virginia couldn't stand it. She caught him in the act many times, hidden away in a motel bathroom or the camper. She would embarrass him by slapping his hands and restricting his privacy. Once, while back home with the family during the holidays, she caught David masturbating and dragged him out in front of the entire family, where she proceeded to mock his habit and threatened to cut off his hands and any other offensive body part he might abuse. Virginia thought this was the best way she could respond to David's habit. While evangelicals sought to distance their spirituality from the more domineering aspects of Protestantism, and especially Catholicism, sex remained an issue. While after marriage it was something to be welcomed, if not openly discussed, sex any time before that went against the purity standards of the community. This became the heart of David's religious confusion, and later, corruption. He saw himself as blessed, as intelligent, as a chosen vessel for God. But he also saw himself as misunderstood. Since childhood, ever since the first abuse conducted against him, David had become fixated on sex. This created a double life for him as he came of age. His focus constantly swung back and forth between the Word of God and the teenage girls all around him. He didn't understand why it was wrong to want to act on these feelings. God made human bodies to love, David thought. So why wasn't he allowed to love? Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. And now let's continue the story. Like his parents before him, David began to distrust any and all central authority, even the evangelistic Christian and Missionary Alliance. Once David graduated high school in 1935, Virginia and Yalmar spoke to the Alliance on his behalf, desiring that they employ him full-time as a minister. They didn't understand that they had raised a rebel. To his parents and the Alliance, he seemed a sure bet. After all, he was the son of the beloved and miraculous Virginia. It was the beginning of the 1940s, and Yalmar pulled a few strings to get his son a job at the ministry at Valley Farms, Arizona. Yet this only lasted a few years. Soon enough, the leaders of the ministry in Valley Farms decided to fire him. David's excuse for the expulsion? He wanted to preach to local Native American reservations in hope of converting followers, but the top brass wouldn't allow him to do so. The truth, of course, is a bit murkier. It seems the 23-year-old David was sleeping with a 17-year-old church employee. David now had the ability to act on his impulses from a position of power, and it was too intoxicating to resist. And when he was fired for his actions, David refused to accept any of the blame. No, it was the regressive policies of the church striking him down. 
For the rest of the decade, David separated himself from Christian work. He returned to college, where he dived deep into the study of philosophy and, specifically, socialism. Like any good American malcontent of the time, the call of socialist utopia was strong, and in David's eyes it seemed an ideological fit with the teachings of Christ. The material world of capitalism mimicked the idolatry of early Christians' spiritual rivals. People worshipped things, not the Lord. The way of the world was greed. The world that surrounded the young David Berg was antithetical to everything he had been taught by his religion. The poor were not respected. Community was not encouraged. Socialism seemed to push against this trend in Western civilization. Slowly, this thought pattern led David back to religion. Like many at the turn of the 20th century, he combined these two ideologies and became what is known as a Christian socialist. God had provided the way forward for him, and David began to travel through ministries on the West Coast, looking for a new spiritual home. During a quick stop at a Los Angeles mission in 1944, he met Jane Miller and promptly married her. Together, they had four children. Linda, later called Deborah in David's cult, was born in 1945. Paul, later known as Aaron in the cult, followed him in 1947. Next came Jonathan in 1949, whose Children of God name was Hosea. Finally, Faith, or Faithy, was born in 1951. But no matter how much David believed in the spirit of socialism, with a family in tow, he needed to earn. He dropped out of college and started looking for work in the only field for which he was qualified, religious ministry. And now it's important to take a step back and take in the religious context of the era. It's common knowledge that the United States underwent a dramatic transformation during the middle of the 20th century. The old ways were being challenged, and stagnant institutions faced major opposition, including American religions. But spirituality, namely Christian spirituality, wasn't weakened in the onset of this torrential counterculture. Instead, it developed a counterculture of its own. The most accurate term for the phenomenon that occurred is revivalism. In America, there have been a few periods of revivalism, most significantly seen in the Great Awakenings of the 19th century. Shifts in power and influence always accompanied these movements. Starting in the 1950s, the revivalist, charismatic movement took hold of American Christianity. They preached about events such as miraculous healings and speaking in tongues. There was also renewed interest in the idea of an apocalypse for the non-believers and revelation for the devout. But the central theme of this movement was the idea of an intensely personal experience with God. This idea resonated with the evangelical Christian community in which David was raised. By the time the 60s rolled into America, evangelical Christianity would have the numbers to rank as one of the most influential religious groups in the history of the country. Which means that, circling back to David Berg at the beginning of the 1950s, expansion was in the air for the evangelical community. David found a key opportunity with Fred Jordan, a star evangelist at the time. Jordan was a charismatic personality who was an early adopter of radio and television as a means to advertise his Christian ministry. He parlayed this into a successful chain of missionary training schools known as the Soul Clinics. Jordan knew of David through the Alliance and hired him on to work at the Miami branch of Soul Clinic at the beginning of the 1950s. Following Virginia, Fred Jordan was the second most influential mentor in David Berg's life. 
The soul clinics were not the stodgy old venues of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and Fred Jordan encouraged the type of grandiose behavior that David Berg specialized in. Jordan was a big idea man and wanted to affect as much change across as big a population as possible. The sooner, the better. This inevitably meant that Jordan was a manipulator, through and through. David's oldest daughter, Deborah, later wrote about this relationship in her own memoir, The Children of God, The Inside Story. Quote, Dad developed the philosophy that it was okay to present facts in any way which would produce positive results. In other words, Jordan taught David how to bend the stories of the Bible to fit any despairing and lost soul's life, with the promise that healing and peace were just a step away. Make a pledge to both Jesus and to Jordan's ministries. God will handle the rest. But David's personal morality continued to sink in a downward spiral. At this same time, around 1951, when his daughter Deborah was barely seven years old, David began sexually abusing her. While Deborah was often successful in keeping her father at a distance, David's abuse attempts like this continued persistently until she was 12. David would tell Deborah that her mother Jane was just not fulfilling all of his needs, and this was something that God wanted. Years after the abuse inflicted upon him, David Berg decided to be the perpetrator. Never given the proper tools or support to help him with what happened while he was a child, David came to believe that all sex was something to be celebrated, even sex with members of his own family. He mistook his sexual dysfunction for divine permission. Deborah didn't understand why her father was abusing her, but something about it felt wrong to her. This wasn't what a father was supposed to do. It wasn't what a religious man was supposed to do. A few years later, when David began to take young Faith with him on road trips to support Soul Clinic recruitment, Deborah feared he was abusing her as well. She was right to worry. David would go on to abuse many of his cult's children, including his youngest daughter, Faith. David Berg knew that he could get away with it. Now he just needed an environment in which he could thrive. All throughout this time, David rose through the ranks at Fred Jordan's Soul Clinic. David's hope for a leadership position wasn't a secret. Ever since he had watched his parents preach in his youth, David Berg desired that ability to influence. Jordan saw it from the start. But in the early 1960s, when David started making too much noise against teaching evolution in local Miami schools, Jordan fired him. This was a major crisis of confidence in David's life. David was cut off from people who had come to see him as a leader. He was once again a shepherd without a real flock. Naturally, he took the firing as a sign of Jordan's jealousy of David's own skill at witnessing. He wasn't entirely wrong. David did have a natural talent, just like Virginia. But most disturbingly of all, that talent proved most effective with teenagers. He had a paternal glint in his eyes and a soft tone of voice. He didn't judge. He seemed to be emotionally open, and he had such a wholesome family around him. How couldn't you trust the guy? Hmm. But still, David's double life continued unabated in the 60s. His abuse of Faith continued all throughout her adolescence. Faith came to see the abuse as something God really did want. As in David's case, this led to serious disassociation later in life, as she was never able to develop a natural perspective on her own sexuality. In addition to molesting and sexually abusing his own children, David was also openly having extramarital affairs. Still, David clung to the illusion that he was a holy man. How? Well, 
Once again, Deborah's analysis from her memoir provides the deepest look into David's self-justification. Quote, My father drew upon the philosophy of exceptions. He looked to the Bible for cases that would apparently justify his actions and gave him grounds for sexual liberty, such as the lives of Solomon, David, and Abraham, all men who had more than one wife. He interpreted these as God's exceptions for his special people, prophets, and anointed leaders. David weaponized biblical interpretation to manipulate his family. He could cheat on Jane whenever he desired, and he could sexually abuse his children without repercussion. And when a teenage boy named Arnold Dietrich joined their family ministry in 1966, he deemed that Arnold would marry Faith, even though she was only 15 years old. David controlled his family, but his mother, Virginia, still remained an authority figure in his life, and in her eyes, he had failed to live up to the Berg name. After Fred Jordan dumped him off the Soul Clinic circuit, he barely scraped together a living, working jobs as a bus driver and a substitute teacher. Meanwhile, by 1967, Virginia had built a new life for herself in Huntington Beach, California. After her husband Yalmar's death in 1953, Virginia migrated west. Instead of a degenerate liberal wasteland, she found a place full of spiritual yearning. The kids on the famous Huntington Beach Pier were down for anything and everything. Drugs, surfing, free love, free speech, and definitely the little old lady on the motorized scooter giving away free food. She had developed, in Deborah's words, a seaside ministry, and she invited the rest of the Bergs to join her. If David couldn't find his own ministry, he could help her here, at the Light Club Mission and Coffee House right off the boardwalk. Little did Virginia know, she had just handed her son the keys to the kingdom. The Mission Coffee House was mostly populated by young surfers and stoners. Open minds, open hearts, and open futures, exactly the audience Jordan had trained David to win over. By the end of the year, Deborah, Aaron, Hosea and Faith were in complete control of the mission's daily operations, under David's supervision, of course. They would play music, sing, jam on their guitars, all while preaching the truth about America's sins, Jesus' love, and the coming apocalypse for non-believers. It was a strange mix, but it was an effective strategy. Attendance grew, and soon the club had over a hundred regular attendees, mostly young kids who previously had nowhere better to go. The radical elements of David's religious philosophy felt right in step with the youth's dissatisfaction with the country's direction. The Vietnam War had begun to reveal itself as a sham conflict that American leadership was unprepared to handle. The great social reforms promised by LBJ's Great Society and the Civil Rights Movement were slow going. Meanwhile, Cold War tensions rose, nearly at a continuous boil after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Nuclear war was a tangible possibility. All in all, these felt like apocalyptic times. David had found the perfect following for his message, a mix of radical political and spiritual ideas. Again, writing from later in life after she left her father's belief system behind, Deborah describes this convergence succinctly. Quote, It was like the cogs of a machine meshing into perfect synchronization. His bitterness against the church, his rejection of the social establishment and the capitalistic system, his contempt for parental authority, all crystallized into a gospel of rebellion. The kids understood him. 
He spoke their heart. There was no generation gap between the shepherd and the flock. Right on cue, a significant event shifted David Berg into pursuing this gospel of rebellion with more passion than ever before. In March 1968, Virginia Berg died. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, back to cults. While he mourned in public for the benefit of his following, Virginia's death psychologically freed David Berg from the central authority figure in his life. Finally, as a middle-aged man, he was the eldest minister Berg. With Virginia gone, David felt free to rebel against not just his own mother, but all parental and authoritative figures in society. The following are David Berg's own writings during the time, which he would preach to the youth at the mission. Quote, so you say the youth of today are rebels, seeking to destroy society? But really, who are the rebels? We or you? Our parents? Society is anti-God. How can they rebel against God's laws? They don't know it. But their parents did, and they rebelled. The parents were the rebels. And now only the children will be allowed in the promised land. End quote. For years, Virginia had praised her son, but she also hounded him. She kept him in line, and she attempted to rein in his most unorthodox and deviant tendencies. Now that she was off the scene, David mythologized his mother issues by making them the central narrative of his ministry. David made the old guard the true enemy of God. He tapped into the counterculture spirit of the times. The adults had failed. It was time for the children to redeem God's word. Forsake all. That became the rallying cry. David told his young followers to leave their family of sinners if they refused to accept Jesus in their hearts. But what the gospel of rebellion was really doing was isolating his young followers from the safety net of their families. He knew that the more they left behind, the more they would need to cling to their new family. He pushed them further and further into extreme behavior. Berg told them to speak out against the oppressive systems in their lives and to do it loudly and publicly. He stirred up such trouble in Huntington Beach that the owners of the Light Club mission asked him to leave. Exiled, like many Bergs before him, but his followers remained loyal. The Teens for Christ group in Huntington Beach took on a new name for themselves, the Children of God, and they would follow David wherever he led them. The first night out of Huntington Beach, David Berg, his family, and nearly 100 followers made camp outside of Tucson, Arizona. He had put on a strong show for the children of God, but David was in dire need of direction. He had gotten what he always wanted. He was the master of his own fate, and it was a lot harder than he thought it would be. Now that he had these followers, what was the next step? Contemplating the future of his growing cult, David met Karen Zerby near their campgrounds. She would be his guide to the next step in the Children of God's development. Zerby was a fellow lost soul, one seeking leadership. David could provide that. In return, Zerby could provide companionship and empowerment. She affirmed his self-image, and he gave her one in the first place. David abandoned his wife Jane and the children for the night and retreated with Zerby to the family camper van to begin his newest extramarital relationship. From that moment on, David and Karen were inseparable. When he emerged, he had a destination in mind, Vienna, Virginia, where a mutual acquaintance could house the group for a few weeks. 
Jane said nothing about David's new companion. She was too used to this type of behavior, and her focus was on holding together a sense of normality. She and the children continued on the journey with him. By the time the children of God reached Virginia at the tail end of 1968, it was clear that something about David had changed. In his mind, his time in the desert of Arizona was his time as Moses on the Mount. He had seen the face of God. He was taking a page from Virginia's playbook directly. He wanted his own moment of miracle. This was going to be his origin story. He was going to ask his followers to accept the unbelievable and bind themselves to him forevermore. He gathered his following in a barn on the property, and he began to speak, and speak, and keep speaking. For nearly 19 hours, David Berg preached with an energy his followers had never seen before. His body shook, tears fell from his eyes. He told them of the great burden God had placed on him. He told them of his vision of the coming end times. This played directly into the apocalyptic messaging that the Berg family had been peddling back in Huntington Beach. Doomsday cults commonly use these fear tactics to draw the followers deeper into the cult's mythos. He proclaimed that under the desert sky, Zerbi, now to be known as Maria, had spoken to him in tongues. David realized that he could understand her, that he could understand the language of God. Some, like Jane and Deborah, were terrified by this proclamation. The rest were blown away by his powerful performance. Finally, at the climax of this nearly day-long marathon, David reached the mission statement, what became known as the Old Church, New Church Division. The children of God had reached a new turning point in history. The ways of those who had turned away from God, the old system of their forefathers, was finished. The old church was no more. The children were to be a new church, a new nation under God, organized to witness and save as many people as they could before the final judgment came to pass. From now on, the children of God was to expand as quickly as possible. They were going to travel the country and the world. They were going to share the revelations that Berg received directly from heaven. They were going to build an army of pure souls to assist Jesus Christ when the second coming began and the materialistic world around them collapsed. And what was the first order passed starting immediately in that barn? The statement that David's wife, Jane, also represented the old church. It was necessary for him to divorce her and take up with Maria, the representation of the new church. Deborah recalls the shock she felt standing next to her mother in this moment, and the shock she felt when, after the ceremony, Jane told her daughter that she would stay with the children of God anyway. It's unclear whether Jane understood the true scope of David's abuse on the children, but she would accept her husband's psychological abuse if it meant keeping her family together. David had just institutionalized his own biblical exception. If he could hear the words of God, he could interpret them in his favor whenever he pleased. He now had that power. David Berg was now Moses David, God's end-time prophet. The birth of Moses David in Vienna, Virginia was a key moment in the history of the cult. It gave David the chance to write his own testament, to create his own full narrative. The children of God, the new nation, were to be an elite group. Their leader had a direct link to God. He spoke to their hearts and reinforced their naive, inexperienced, but ultimately hopeful views on the future. 
The world may be ending, but God can still save those who open their hearts. And they had opened their hearts, but it was to Moses David, not God. They were unwittingly engaged in a process called dual validation. This idea is written about by Professor Roy Wallace in his work, The Social Construction of Charisma. He extensively studied the tactics Moses David utilized over the years as the children of God grew and eventually morphed into the Family International. Dual validation is a charisma trap. A leader with great charismatic power finds a group in great despair. They feel lost, like they lack a concrete identity in an overly complex world. The leader cuts through the noise and appeals directly to their sense of self. The leader presents to them an artificially clean moral choice, framing him or herself as the paragon of this moral virtue. When the followers decide to accept this belief in the leader, in other words, validating the leader's self-constructive narrative, they themselves are validated. It's a rather simple feedback loop in the end. The followers reward the leader with their belief, and the leader rewards the followers with a purpose. But there is a catch. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it a trap. As time passes, the followers get more and more used to feeling good about themselves, feeling good about the mission that has been given to them. If the leader alters or radicalizes that mission in any way, even in ways that seem at odds with the original conception of the mission, the followers can't turn away. Because if they break away from their leader now, it retroactively proves that the mission was never true, that the leader was never true, and ultimately that their own feelings of validation were never true. Mm. Following an extreme cult, further and further into delusion and disconnection from societal morality becomes a defense mechanism. After investing so much in a belief, it's too costly to give it up. David might not have understood this tactic on a conscious level, at least not at the beginning. But he'd been using this strategy for years now within his own family. And with this night in the barn, he was using it on his entire following. If they bought into this tale, and they did, en masse, then he had won their hearts and perfectly executed this dual validation trap. As time went by and the darker shades of David emerged, still many in the cult refused to accept the evidence. David Berg was a man of God. He believed in God's love. How could his actions be evil? In a way, David Berg's psychological schism was passed on, first to his biological family, and then to his new family, the children of God. On one level, many sensed inconsistencies in his actions and words, but his words also inspired them and gave them a greater connection to Jesus Christ. All of his children, biological and spiritual, were forced to live the same divided life he did if they wanted to belong with the cult. David had trapped them in his own moral universe, where he was their only connection to God's truth. At age 50, David had finally realized what he was always destined to be. Not a witness, not a minister, not a father, not a husband, but a cult leader. Next week, we'll see exactly what kind of cult emerges from a psyche like David Berg's. We'll learn how it grew from a hundred California exiles to a worldwide enterprise with thousands upon thousands of members. We'll follow its many iterations and transformations and track the lasting effects of Berg's psychologically, spiritually, and physically abusive policies and witness firsthand how that damage still reverberates in our modern world. 
from the children of God to the family international, while Moses David did lead some souls to Jesus Christ, the real David Berg destroyed the lives of many innocents. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcast, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Tuesday for a final episode covering David Berg and his cult, The Family International. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, production assistance by Joel Stein and Carrie Murphy, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Jack Bentel and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 